0: Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Julian Malkina. I'm a partner in SNC's Litigation Group and co-lead of the firm's Securities Litigation Practice. I'm here today with my litigation partners, Jeff Scott, co-lead of S and Securities Litigation Practice, and Steve Pekin, lead of the firm's Securities and Commodities Investigations and Enforcement Practice. Today, we will discuss recent trends and emerging issues in private securities litigation. Jeff, will you kick us off?
1: Thanks, Julia. We will start with numerical trends. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, securities class action filings significantly declined in 2020. This was a dramatic turnaround from the record number of filings we saw in 2019. In 2020, the plaintiff's bar filed 334 securities class actions. A meaningful drop from 427 filings in 2019, 420 in 2018, and 412 in 2017. But despite this decline, overall filings last year were still higher than the 288 filings we saw in 2016, and the average of 224 filings between 1997 and 2019, a 22 year period. In 2020, there were 234 core filings, that is, filings that were not M&A-related. This is down from 267 core filings in 2019. The drop was pronounced in core filings against consumer and communications companies from 87 to 67 and 37 to 19 in those two categories.
2: Yes. As special purpose acquisition companies have emerged as a critical tool for capital formation in current market conditions, SPAC driven IPOs have dramatically increased. In 2020, there were 248 SPAC IPOs, a more than fourfold increase compared with 2019. 2021 is on pace to become the busiest year ever for SPAC transactions. The widespread use of SPACs will likely drive an increase in securities filings in this area. But the growth has been modest thus far. There were five securities litigation filings involving SPACs in 2020, up from one or two per year in the previous years. 2020 also saw the end of a rise in state court filings that began with the Supreme Court's 2018 decision in Cyan Inc. versus Beaver County Employees Retirement Fund. State court filings under the Securities Act of 1933 declined by 68% in 2020 as compared to 2019. Last year, there were only 18 state filings of 33 Act claims, down from 52 filings the previous year. Of those 18 filings, 12 were filed in New York, while four were filed in California. One of the reasons for this decline is the Delaware Supreme Court's decision in Salzburg v. Skabakuki in March of 2020. In that case, the Delaware Supreme Court upheld the enforceability of federal form provisions, or FFPs. Provisions in corporate governing documents that provide that 33 Act claims against the company must be brought in federal court.
1: Julia, this brings us to some other important developments in state court securities litigation. Let's talk a bit about those, one of which is a series of California decisions that have also upheld the enforceability of federal form provisions. Of
0: course, Jeff. In four decisions between September and December 2020, Trial courts in California ruled that FFPs are generally enforceable under California law and can preclude 1933 Act claims from being brought in state court, absent a showing by the plaintiff that the provisions are unconscionable, unreasonable, or otherwise unenforceable. On September 1st, a California trial court in Wong versus Restoration Robotics became the first in the state since the Cyan decision to dismiss claims brought under the 1933 Act because of an FFP. Applying California law, the court reasoned that the provision is most akin to a contractual form selection clause because it didn't remove the rights of the parties to litigate in court, to a jury trial, or to appeal, or create any additional expense or inconvenience. Not long thereafter, on November 16th, another California trial court upheld the enforceability of an FFP in Uber's corporate charter. Then, in a pair of decisions on December 4th, another California trial court upheld the enforceability of FFPs in litigation against Dropbox and Sodom Technologies. The courts reasoned that FFPs did not eliminate the Security Act's substantive protections and served a legitimate business need, avoiding unnecessary costs, and the burden of defending multiple cases simultaneously in state and federal courts.
1: Julia, what can we take away from these decisions?
0: Jeff, we have already seen a significant drop in 1933 Act claims brought in California state court. Assuming California courts continue to enforce FFPs, we are likely to see that continue. This is especially significant as California has been one of the two states, along with New York, with the most State Court 33 Act claims in Cyan. If other states, especially New York, enforce FFPs, they will continue to grow in significance for curbing the rise of State Court 33 Act claims. Steve, the past year has also seen the first post-Cyan appellate rulings on motions to dismiss and on motions to vacate a parallel action in New York State Court. What can you tell us about these rulings?
2: Sure, Julia. The first department issued two noteworthy opinions in recent months reviewing motion to dismiss decisions. In the first case, the trial court granted defendants motions to dismiss as to a claim under Section 12A2 of the 33 Act that allowed the Section 11 and Section 15 claims to proceed after holding that the plaintiffs had adequately pleaded that the alleged omission was material. The first department unanimously reversed as to the claims under Sections 11 and 15 and upheld the dismissal of the Section 12A2 claim. The panel reasoned that the plaintiffs had focused myopically on metrics that were largely irrelevant to defendants' revenue, citing Second Circuit precedent on financial disclosure standards for an IPO. In the second decision, the first department held that a trial court should have dismissed 33 Act claims with prejudice because they were time barred Although New York trial courts have sometimes deferred on statute of limitations questions, finding them fact-intensive, the first department ruled that plaintiffs clearly could have brought their claims earlier as neither Section 11 nor Section 12 requires a plaintiff to plead damages. The First Department's decision will likely strengthen the position of defendants seeking to defeat State Court 33 Act claims on statute of limitations grounds.
0: We also have a few new decisions on when New York courts should state state proceedings in favor of parallel federal cases. New York courts look to the general state factors in considering this issue. Which action was commenced first on the stage of litigation? Whether there is substantial overlap between the parties, issues, and relief requested? Where a more complete disposition of issues may be obtained? Whether a stay will avoid duplication of effort, waste of judicial resources, and the risk of inconsistent rulings? Whether plaintiffs have demonstrated how they would be prejudiced by a stay? And which court possesses greater familiarity with such issues?
1: Julie, a recent decision seemed to indicate that the first three factors are most significant. Specifically, the latest cases suggest that New York courts are hesitant to stay state proceedings where the concurrent federal action would not dispose of all the questions in the state action. This is even where there might be substantial overlap and the federal action was filed first. For example, in one case, a number of putative securities class actions were filed first against defendants in federal court, and the New York Trial Court granted a stay of a parallel state action that was later filed with the same claims. After the federal actions were dismissed, the plaintiff sought to lift the state court stay. After filing an amended complaint with a new claim, the trial court recognized that the underlying conduct relied upon may be different, but kept the stay in place. However, the first department reversed, reasoning that there were different plaintiffs and claims in the federal and state actions, and that the decision in the federal action will not determine all the questions in this action. This first department decision, along with other trial court decisions, indicate that when New York courts are considering a stay motion, they will carefully scrutinize the nature and degree of overlap between parallel state and federal actions. As a result, defendants may continue to face the risk of parallel actions where different plaintiffs have chosen to advance different claims in each action. Steve and Julia, let's shift gears here and discuss the private securities litigation implications of the rise of corporate disclosures about environmental, social, and governance factors, otherwise known as ESG factors. We have seen that ESG disclosures cover topics such as climate change, environmental sustainability, human rights, diversity and inclusion, and occupational health and safety. Many companies are now responding to increasing stakeholder interest in these issues and proactively moving to disclose ESG risks, impacts, and practices.
2: That's right, Jeff. As ESG disclosures have become more prevalent, so is the risk of securities litigation relating to these disclosures. In 2020, we saw a number of shareholder derivative actions and putative securities fraud class actions stemming from various ESG disclosures. For example, in a series of derivative suits filed in California federal courts, shareholders allege that directors and officers of companies ranging from a cybersecurity firm to a clothing retailer had breached their fiduciary duties and violated section 14A of the 34 Act by failing to uphold corporate commitments to leadership diversity. Recent cases also show that companies may face a risk of litigation arising from disclosures about their safety and environmental sustainability policies. For example, in May 2020, a court in the Eastern District of New York denied a mining company's motion to dismiss in a securities fraud case alleging that the collapse of a dam rendered false the company's statements about its risk management and sustainability policies and practices. In another case involving public statements about a corporate mining safety program, the court dismissed the claim for lack of particularity and failure to adequately plead falsity.
0: Recent ESG-related cases highlight that courts vary in their assessments of whether ESG-related statements are inactionable puffery, even in cases involving similar rewarded statements. This uncertainty and how a court will rule on a particular ESG disclosure carries significant implications for potential liability arising from such disclosures. As a result, companies should carefully consider the language they use in their disclosures, as well as consult with counsel about the prospect of liability under the federal securities laws, as well as consumer protection and anti-fraud laws.
1: Julia, the rise of ESG disclosures has led some investors to call for adoption of a standardized framework for such disclosures. In May 2020, the SEC's Investment Advisory Committee Recommended that the SEC should address ESG disclosures. There are significant signs that the SEC is giving increased attention to the regulatory regime for ESG disclosures. In February, SEC Acting Chair Allison Heron Lee announced that she was directing the division of Corp Fin to enhance its focus on climate related disclosures. We understand that the SEC will look to update its guidance from 2010 for disclosure on climate change matters. Acting Chair Lee has also stated that the SEC plans to implement a global framework for climate disclosures, which will provide, according to Acting Chair Lee, for relevant, standardized, comparable, and reliable disclosure of business risks and opportunities. And in early March of this year, the SEC announced it created a new climate and ESG task force in the Division of Enforcement, which will aim to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct and also analyze disclosure and compliance issues relating to investment advisors and funds ESG strategies. The SEC also has issued a request for public comment on how it can regulate climate change disclosures. Steve and Julia, let's turn now to COVID-related security suits. In the past six months, we've seen some notable, though relatively modest levels of these types of securities filings. Most COVID-related litigation has focused on companies in the biomedical and healthcare industries, but we are beginning to see event-driven litigation against companies in other industries relating to specific challenges and opportunities presented by the pandemic.
0: That's right, Jeff. Between August and December 2020, at least three class action complaints were filed against biomedical companies including one alleging misstatements or omissions about the development of a COVID-19 vaccine and two alleging false statements about the development of diagnostic tests for COVID-19. This trend continued into 2021 with the filing of securities class actions against decision diagnostics, alleging misstatements about its development of a COVID-19 test, and against drug maker AstraZeneca challenging its statements about a vaccine candidate.
2: Beyond the biomedical industry, plaintiffs have brought several new COVID related suits against companies in other sectors. For instance, in August 2020, shareholders filed a class action complaint against Eastman Kodak, alleging a fraudulent scheme to inflate Kodak's stock price. The plaintiffs charged that defendants failed to disclose stock option grants to Kodak's executive prior to the company's July 2020 announcement of a $765 million loan from the U.S. International Finance Corporation to produce ingredients for COVID-19 drugs. Other notable cases include actions against Royal Caribbean Cruises for allegedly misleading statements about booking slowdowns and safety protocols aboard ships, an education company for alleged misstatements about its capacity to support the increased demand for virtual learning during the pandemic, and a meat producer or alleged misleading disclosures about its coronavirus safety protocols. In light of the risk of these kinds of claims, companies should carefully review their disclosures with the assistance of counsel to ensure adequate disclosure of any material impact that the coronavirus pandemic is having on their performance, business operations, and activities.
1: Related to the point just made by Steve, in October 2020, the SEC received a petition for rulemaking from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce requesting that the commission exercise its authority to create additional exemptions from liability for COVID-related litigation. The proposal included the SEC using its authority under the PSLRA to bar liability for statements about a company's plans or prospects for getting back to business, resuming sales, or profitability, or other statements about the impacts of COVID-19, whether forward-looking or not as long as suitable warnings were attached. It does remain to be seen what actions, if any, the SEC will take in order to address securities litigation arising from the pandemic-related statements. Finally, let's turn to one of the most closely watched securities cases in recent years, now before the U.S. Supreme Court. In December 2020, the court granted a cert petition by Goldman Sachs and its former senior officers, represented by S&C, seeking review of a second circuit decision affirming class certification in Goldman Sachs Group versus Arkansas Teacher Retirement System the supreme court will consider the standards to be applied by courts when defendants seek to rebut the presumption of class-wide reliance established in Basic Inc versus Levinson the basic presumption allows securities plaintiffs to show that common questions predominate over individual ones on the issue of reliance if they can establish certain prerequisites for invoking that presumption. These prerequisites include that the challenge statements were public and material, and that the stock was traded in an efficient market. The presumption is based on the so-called fraud in the market theory, that the market price of a security traded in an efficient market incorporates all public material information. It is the basic presumption that effectively allows most securities fraud lawsuits to proceed as class actions, and increases the amount of damages that the class could potentially collect against the defendants.
0: In 2014, in a case known as Halliburton II, the Supreme Court held that a defendant may rebut the basic presumption at class certification by showing that the challenge statements had no price impact. The Goldman Sachs case now raises two issues before the Supreme Court. First, whether a defendant in a securities class action may rebut the basic presumption of classified reliance by pointing to the generic nature of the alleged misstatements in showing that the statements had no price impact. And second, whether a defendant seeking to rebut the basic presumption has only a burden of production or also the ultimate burden of persuasion. The Supreme Court held oral argument in this case on March 29, 2021. According to commentators, the appeal could redefine the ability of shareholders to pursue class actions against public companies whose stock prices fall. A decision is expected from the Supreme Court before the end of its yearly term in July.
2: That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sulcrom.com. For more in-depth discussion of today's topics, please take a look at our biannual Securities Enforcement and Litigation Update. Published this month and available on the Securities Litigation page of our website. Please also join Jeff, Julia, and me for our SEC Critical Insights on the priorities and activities of the SEC's Enforcement Division.